0: Hello everyone and welcome to After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear, and we are back at it here on Thursday afternoon, July 12th, and today's episode is going to be the state of wrestling. We're going to talk about last Saturday's G1 special in San Francisco, Um, hence the Gorillas of Destiny theme song opening this show. Uh, We'll talk about The Bullet Club infighting. We'll talk about the unfortunate injury to uh, junior heavyweight champion Hiromu Takahashi. We'll talk about the G1 climax set to start in the coming days. Who I think will win, how it'll shake out, how it will shape how New Japan moves forward to Wrestle Kingdom coming in January. We'll talk about this Sunday's Extreme Rules pay per view. I'll offer you my preview and predictions on the entire card. We'll talk about the state of 205 Live. We'll talk about things that are going well on Raw and SmackDown. Guys who are doing well, bad, things that I've noticed, trends and all that. I'll touch briefly upon going to WWE Live last Friday, talking about how being in a live crowd really gives you a sense of how much of a star people are and how audiences truly view them. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit at the end about the All In um, special coming up on September 1st. Talk a little bit about NXT, and we'll touch a little bit on the artist formerly known as Caitlin returning to WWE for the May Young Classic. But first things first, the big story going right now, hence, as I said already, the Gorilla is a destiny's theme song, which absolutely bumps opening this show. The new Japan G1 special in San Francisco last Saturday. Um, Once again, I am your host, Brad Clear, and we're just going to dive right into it. Last Saturday, uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling put on the G1 special, this year live from the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Look, it's a 10,000 seat venue, it's old, it's very much a dump at this point, but still, it's a 10,000 seat venue. Just going off of that alone, it was not a sold out crowd, there was a significant amount of empty um, seats as far as... The lower bowl, well, there's only one bowl in the uh, Cow Palace, but as far as the seats that were actually, not floor seats, the ones that are actually built into the arena, a good amount of those were not filled. And I'm not saying this as any sort of indictment or bad thing about New Japan Pro Wrestling. I just think at this stage, a 10,000-seat venue for New Japan Pro Wrestling in the United States, thinking you're going to sell it out, it's probably not a good um, mindset to have. And to add on top of it, I don't think that the show was very well promoted. I think a lot of the um, potential awareness that could have arise for it outside of the dedicated hardcore fans was not able to exist because of the lack of promotion for it. I think there could have been a much better job done with that. But again, I just think New Japan Pro Wrestling right now in the United States as a standalone show, uh, their ceiling is a 5,000 seat venue. And we'll see how they do uh, with their event coming in September in Long Beach again. But 10,000 seat, I think, may have been overextending themselves a bit, and without the lack of, or without the proper promotion needed, the lack of ticket sales and selling out the arena reflected that. But let's get to the actual show itself. So the biggest story coming out of the New Japan uh, G1 Special, obviously, is the infighting and reunion in some ways within Bullet Club show obviously main evented by kenny omega the iwgp heavyweight champion defending his title for the first time against cody a sort of culmination of this long awesome story that is being told on bte um on all the shows with new japan in the past uh probably you know at this point for over seven months the story is being told With Cody trying to take over the reins of Bullet Club and oust Kenny and get everyone to turn on Kenny and create chaos within it. And Kenny's finally overcome all that and won the championship. And Cody just couldn't bring himself to congratulate him or anything like that. They have this match, absolutely killed each other. You know, a superplex off the top of a ladder. a From Kenny Omega, Mike Awesome-esque powerbomb powerbombing Cody over the top rope to the floor outside the ring off of a table. Um, Obviously, he didn't go through it, as we saw watching the show. I thought he damn near killed him. Hit right off of it, landed on his head on the floor. A scary, scary um, spot, I guess we'll call it. And as a whole, it was a very good match. And you saw Cody had the chance. This played into what happened later on. Cody had the chance... You know, there's a ref bump, the ref was down. Cody had the IWGP Heavyweight Championship belt. Kenny was prone. He could have hit Kenny with that title, and he decided against it. Obviously, playing into what happened after, I really liked how, you know, on BTE the week before, when Nick Jackson and Matt ended the show with Nick doing his sort of indie taker thing where he has like a premonition, so to speak. Shout out Matt Hardy. Um... About something bad was going to happen, and he did the eye roll thing. And so then, after the match with Cody, Kenny, Matt, and Nick are celebrating, they two sweet the Tongans, Tama Tonga, Tongaloa, and King Haku, and they're doing the two sweet on the stage. And they, they you see this little snapshot afterwards that Nick Jackson had the little Undertaker eyes going, like his premonition was about to happen. And then, sure enough, Tama Tonga, Tongaloa, King Haku, they laid him out. Uh, beat the absolute shit out of him, brought him down to the ring. Hangman Page came out to save him. He got beat down. Marty Skrull got beat down. Even Yujiro Takahashi and Chase Owens, who were OGs who you would have thought, or at least I would have thought, when they came out, they would have aligned with the Tongans, laid them out too. And then it came down to just one person left to come out. And as I'm watching this in the back of my head, the whole time I was saying, Oh, Cody's going to come out and join them. It's going to be the Tongans and Cody taking on everyone else. And Cody comes out, and he got the chair, and then you could see, you know, once he got the chair, he kind of switched his positioning on the chair. He kind of held it sideways, obviously, for like that sideways chair shot where you put it into the um, the opponent's gut. You saw that coming. And when he did that, when he hit Tonga, uh, Tama Tonga with the chair, I came unglued. The entire crowd came unglued. It was sort of Cody writing his wrong of what he's been for the last seven, eight months. Realizing the importance of being reunited with Bullet Club. Realizing the importance of becoming the guy he once was as they talked about in Being the Elite this past week uh, with Matt Jackson talking to Cody what was before that match. They put that on the Being Elite episode that came out after the show. But that was an awesome moment. Cody realizing it's time to stop. It's time to stop the fighting. And with the Tongans posing a threat, unite with his brothers. And he did. Obviously, again, the Tongans laid him out as well. Laid everyone out. Everyone was dead in the ring. Something that was so cool afterwards. Tama Tonga gets out of the ring. You know that Gorilla of, of Destiny theme that just bumps with the bass and everything. It's so awesome. He comes out. He takes his hair tie off. He puts it right back in. He slicks his hair back. He's walking all cool and slow. You got the big bass pumping in the back. Personally, for me, I had never even heard the grills of Destiny theme song. Ever. So once I heard that for the first time when they were walking out like badasses after laying out the rest of Bullet Club, it I thought it was the coolest thing. Then, after they went to the back, all Bullet Club reunited. At the top of the stage, they all put up the one suite together. Kenny and Cody hugged. Bygones are bygones. And then we got the amazing moment on being the elite. Where everyone's sitting around after they got laid out, eating food. Cody comes in. He breaks the silence and says what everyone else was thinking: "How are we gonna wake? How he says, how are we gonna make these motherfuckers pay?" And then says, in the best line of the year, so funny. And what the hell is Haku's problem? So funny with that just hilarious delivery. And everyone else was thinking it. You know, Haku just coming in, he's got beef with everyone. Whatever it is, I'm very excited to see how this progresses. Um, they had the Firing Squad shirts on, so I don't think that they are not Bullet Club because it said BC Firing Squad on the shirt. It's them basically claiming Tamatonga, Tangaloa, Haku, probably inevitably Bad Luck Fale, it's them claiming that they are Bullet Club and that Cody, Kenny, the Young Bucks, Marty, Paige, they are not. You know, We'll see where Taiji Ishimori... Um, ties into this as well But you can tell that they think that they are the true bullet club It's almost in a way like you know nwo red and white nwo black and white Or red and black black and white wolf pack and og. It's kind of like that um, Tama Tonga is in the same g1 block as kenny I'll get into that in a bit, but I fully expect um, Tama Tonga to get a victory over kenny in the G1, in their block, so that Kenny will ultimately have to defend that title against Tama Tonga at some point. Again, I'll get into more about that in detail when I get to the G1 preview later on in the episode, but that's definitely going to happen. Looking at the rest of the show, I really enjoyed the uh, the Bushi and Tetsuya Naito taking on Will Ospreay and Kazuchika Okada. Naito is just awesome. He has this, and you can see why... The entire Japanese audience has gravitated towards him. He has this, yes, he's the anti-hero who just doesn't care or whatever, but he has this silent charisma and presence to him where he just comes across as the coolest person in the world. You can't help but not root for this guy or become invested in him or like him, even if your beloved babyface is wrestling him. Well, Ospreay, as he always does, laid it all on the line, going 120%. Okada is the man. They got the win there. I enjoyed that tag match. I really enjoyed the Young Bucks taking on Evil and Sonata for the heavyweight tag titles. I don't think the Young Bucks get enough credit. Like, I know everyone recognizes them as the best tag team in the world, which they are. But a lot of times I think people say that for their ability, to, you know, with stories, with BTE, um, with... You know, their super kicks and their high spot moves and all that. They don't get enough credit for just how good of just pure wrestlers they are. That match with Evil and Sonata, you know, two big guys. It was a hard fought back and forth match. You know, obviously they got tons of super kicks in. They got a Meltzer driver in. But the psychology of the match and just how they stood toe to toe going fist to fist -to fist with them. That's not the style of match that a lot of people associate with the Young Bucks. And I think people who do like them, and even like those who watch them all the time, even me personally before this match, did do not give them or did not give them enough credit for just how good of a wrestlers they are as far as adapting the styles, working a long match, working as heels, babyfaces, whatever. They're dynamite in every single way. Truly one of the greatest tag teams to ever walk this earth. Now we got to get into another thing um, on a sour note from this show. The unfortunate injury to the IWGP junior heavyweight champion, Hiromu Takahashi. Um, he was wrestling Dragon Lee. The two of them have incredible chemistry, incredible matches every time they step in the ring together. And so as I was watching this, these guys were killing each other the whole time. You know, Takahashi did a, basically a flying leg drop off the top to the outside with Dragon Lee on the floor. Hell, the match even started with Takahashi on the apron. Dragon Lee doing a running Rana. He jumped over the top rope and then rana Takahashi from the apron to the floor. They had that, that really... I didn't like it at all. Just based on what I'm going to get into later as far as um, head and neck stuff with New Japan where they did the spot where they kept suplexing each other, dropping each other on their heads continuously. And then ultimately came the move... Um, Dragon Lee went for that, that, like, cradle plex that he does, and it's supposed to end up where he doesn't let go, and they land basically on the back of their, you know, right on the back of their neck, upper shoulder area, but he released Takahashi, and, you know, based on how you have the move set up, if you let go of him, there is no way that he is not going to land directly on his head and neck. And as what happened, he lets him go and released during the move. Takahashi landed his full weight landed on his he landed on his forehead and rolled over. Finished the match. It was obviously kind of woozy, but then it comes out the next day. He broke his neck on that spot. Now he's back in Japan. They say he may not need surgery and it may not necessarily be the most severest of broken neck. Um, you know. It's not a; it's not a paralysis-esque broken neck. It's maybe just a break of a vertebrae or whatever. We don't know, but the point is, regardless of how severe it is, regardless of if he needs surgery or not, what this injury—this injury was inevitable, because what New Japan Pro Wrestling does is they; these guys are they're fantastic wrestlers. They're so good in the ring, telling stories and being so athletic with their bodies, but they have this weird consistent insistence and emphasis on head and neck bumps falling on your head and neck moves that target the head and the neck falling on your head and neck over and over and over you know chris Jericho said it great he said basically along the lines of you know wrestling should be stiff but it shouldn't be dangerous falling on your head and neck regardless of how well trained you are consistently like that you're prone to a disastrous occurrence and that's what happened here it's an unnecessary risk to take these guys do not need to do these dangerous, risky spots to make themselves um, get over or be popular or be seen as great because they legitimately are. They don't need to do this. You know, Takahashi isn't the only one. You know, Okada, he takes moves on his neck all the time. Kota will take moves sometimes where it's a move that he could take on his back, but he'll end up taking it where he ends up taking it on his neck a lot even, you know, they did it safely, I guess, as safely as you can, Dragon Lee and Takahashi traded about six German suplexes onto their necks back and forth, like I mentioned. They're making it dangerous for themselves when they don't need to, because there's nothing they need to compensate for with violence and riskiness. There's no need to make it dangerous. And consistently working so stiff and so hard, and landing on your neck over and over and over, I'm honestly, I hate to say this, it's not, it's, I'm almost surprised that this didn't, something like this didn't happen sooner. Obviously, it was an accident. And obviously, you know, Dragon Lee didn't just let go of Takahashi like nothing. But how did, like, if you see that move, there is no possible way that he was not going to legitimately fucking kill himself, or get destroyed, Based off of how he would have landed, there's no safe way to release him on that suplex and for him to have not have landed directly on his head, with the top of his head, back of his head or neck. Okay, if you're trying to sell that the match is t- they're tired or whatever and they've beaten the shit out of each other over and over, but to do something like that, which ultimately ended up with one of the most promising wrestlers in the world, one of the best juniors that there is in that company, if not the best... To have a broken neck who may never be the same again because of it, and it may affect his ability to wrestle forever and potentially his life after wrestling and outside of wrestling, it's not worth it. These guys are better than this. There needs to be a company-wide effort made to avoid this head and neck focus. That does not have a place in wrestling because... As Chris Jericho said, it takes it from stiff and snug to dangerous and risky. And as I mentioned earlier, these guys are so talented. They do not need to do this. Just be safe. Make it look great as they do because they're so good. But keep yourself out of the way of such an enormous risk when you don't have to take it. It's just such a shame that it took, you know, a, a potentially catastrophic injury like this to really open a lot of people's eyes to the dangers of that really stiff style of focusing on the head and neck. It doesn't matter if you like New Japan and not WWE or if you don't like New Japan. and You're not using this to satisfy any agenda. You're using this to solely point out the fact that this company with incredible wrestlers Is taking unnecessary risks, which may have destroyed the career of one of their best wrestlers. All my prayers are out to Hiromu Takahashi. I hope he recovers to the fullest extent, and I hope that he's able to come back in the ring and do what he's done at such a high level for so long, uh, to continue to do that in the future. Because... This is something you hate to see and this is something that did not, ha- did not need to happen and absolutely should not have happened. And if New Japan does not change their ways, something like this, again, I hate to say it, is going to happen again to someone else. Alright, so moving on from that, keeping with the New Japan theme, let's get in to the G1 Climax coming up this weekend. It's beginning to start. We have the A block and the B block. Let's go through the participants here, and I'll give you my preview predictions. You know, who I think will be the finalist and the winner. Who I think will beat some other people. Some things I see happening. So the A block for the show. We have Togi Makabe, Michael Elgin, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Kazuchika Okada, Switchblade J White, Yoshihashi, Bad Luck Fale, in his debut in the G1 Hangman Page, Evil, Minoru Suzuki. And then in the B-Block, we have the IWGP United States Champion, shout out to him for winning that title, uh, Juice Robinson, the Never Openweight Champion, Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, Toru Tamatonga, Tama Tonga, Sanada, Tetsuya Naito, Zack Sabre Jr., Kenny Omega, and Kota Ibushi. Uh, that B-Block, that top tier of the B-Block, Naito, Omega, Ibushi. In one block, it's incredible, and even in the A block, you know, the A block is an obvious who's is obvious who's going to win it, but you know, outside of Okada, Hiroshi Tanahashi, obviously a legend in the in New Japan Pro Wrestling, in wrestling as a whole, but as a whole, I find B block to be much stronger, and let's just get into my preview and predictions. So, the A block is obviously going to be Kazuchika Okada. And quite frankly, he is going to win this whole thing. I have no doubt about it in my mind. He may not be the champion right now, but the ace of New Japan Pro Wrestling is going to be in the main event of the Tokyo Dome at Wrestle Kingdom, wrestling for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship every single year, whether he's the champ or whether he's the challenger. There is no way that Okada is not challenging for this title at this upcoming Wrestle Kingdom show. I would... Th- it, there's no doubt in my mind. I would... He's not going to go undefeated. But he is, with no question, winning the A block. Looking at the rest of A block, we'll get another chapter in his historic rivalry with Tanahashi. Um, Him and Minoru Suzuki, they've uh, wrestled for the title... Um. After the Wrestle Kingdom where he beat Omega. So that was not this past year. It was 2017. Um, one thing I think is really cool is him wrestling Jay White. You know, Jay White joined Chaos. Everyone thought that he had ulterior motives where he was going to destroy it from within. Try to take down their leader. I think that there is a really cool story potential as far as... Um, you know, Okada being the leader of chaos, Jay White being in chaos, Jay White wanting to take it for himself and create instability within it. I expect Jay White to beat Okada in this uh, A block because Okada will have to have some challengers to defend his uh, Tokyo Dome title shot against. Fully expect Jay White to be one of those winners. You look at the rest of the block, matchups that could be cool. Hangman Page is in his first ever G1. Um... He is someone who really is fantastic. He has size, athleticism, strength, speed. He's really the total package and has become that. And I think a lot of people recognize him for being the elite, which is fine because he's you know one of the best characters on the show. But he's a legitimately very good wrestler. I'm very excited to see him in there one-on-one with someone as good as Okada or even Tanahashi. I know he was in a tag match against Tanahashi... Um, At the G1 Special. But him in a 1-on-1 match with Okada or with Tanahashi. Even him against Suzuki. I think that would be a really fun, interesting dynamic. Looking at the rest of it, um, I I could definitely see it coming down to Okada and Tanahashi as far as the top two guys in the block. If I had to say other guys who I think will beat Okada to get that Tokyo Dome title shot from him. Because I think he's definitely winning A block and the whole thing. I think Tanahashi will get a win on him. I think Jay White will get a win on him. And then I think someone very surprising will get a win on him. You know. I'm thinking, I'm looking at this here now. I kinda feel like I could see it being um I kinda feel like I could see it being Elgin. Don't know why, but I could I kinda have a hunch there. You because know, 'cause we've already we've already seen him wrestle Evil. We've already seen him wrestle Suzuki. Tanahashi is an exception because of the historic rivalry between them and him being the previous ace. I don't see Hangman Page getting the win on him. So Elgin, Jay White, and Tanahashi getting wins off of Okada with Okada still winning the A block and then inevitably winning. The whole thing is my prediction there. Now let's move to the B block. This is going to be really cool because this block is going to come down to Kenny Omega versus Kota Ibushi, a match we have all been clamoring to see for so long. You have Omega in there as the champion. You have Naito as the man who won it last year. I do not see any way in which Naito wins the B block solely because I think that he is going to be the champion going into Wrestle Kingdom, defending it against Okada. And as a quick a quick aside there, I, it's, it's weird to say this considering he'll probably go into the show as champion and I expect him to, but I kind of feel bad for Naito in the sense that this guy was the is and was the most popular guy in the company for the last probably three years. 2016, G1, everyone expected him to win and to go on to main event against Okada, and Kenny Omega won. Last year, he finally won, got his main event match against Okada, everyone in the world and their mother thought he was going to win, and he lost. And now this year, Omega was the one who dethroned Okada, so... He'll still go in as champion, but he's going to end up losing that title to Okada in the main event at the Tokyo Dome. So, he will not have gotten his big moment of winning the title in the main event of the Tokyo Dome against Okada. Which, with how popular he is and was, it was kind of a deserved... um, I think he kind of deserved that to get that moment, and that's not going to happen now at least during his peak popular phase, which he's still in right now. Um, I think this block is going to Kota go Ibushi. There's no reason to have Omega Okada be the finals, and Ibushi getting a win, or, actually, I take that back. I think the way I see this going is this. That last match is between Omega and Ibushi, and I think it ends up where Omega has to win but Ibushi can make it to the finals with a loss or a draw, or with a win or a draw. I think they draw, so there's no decisive finish there. And Ibushi goes into the finals, loses to Okada. As I mentioned earlier, I think Naito becomes the IWGP Heavyweight Champion before Wrestle Kingdom, meaning that I believe he will beat Kenny in their match. So, I think you have Ibushi and Kenny draw, and so when Kenny inevitably loses that title to Naito, Ibushi and Kenny still don't have the decisive who's better between the two because they drew in their match. And Kenny wants to prove that he's better than Ibushi. Ibushi may believe that he's better than Kenny. Obviously, you add other wrinkles in there with the story. But that can lead into a Wrestle Kingdom match. Just it's even if there's nothing more added to it, which I expect, you could still do just, you know, Kota thinks he's better, Kenny thinks he's better. We don't know who's better because they drew in the G1. Let's have a match at Wrestle Kingdom and let's see who's the better man. Simple as that. There's no reason to give away the decisive finish or decisive fall between one or the other at the G1 when it can be saved for Wrestle Kingdom. I expect, as I mentioned earlier, Kenny to lose to Naito so that Naito will get a title shot against him and eventually win the title from him between G1 and Wrestle Kingdom. Tama Tonga is in that B block. After seeing what happened at the G1 special, Tama Tonga is getting a one-on-one win against Kenny to get a title shot um, after the G1 before Wrestle Kingdom, before he wrestles Naito. He has to, based off of how the story went. Tama Tonga was the guy who directly attacked Kenny. Tonga is great at telling a story verbally. He's a good promo. He's got a great look. He has a swag and a cool vibe about him. But he doesn't really... You know, in big-time singles matches, he, I've never been wowed by him. So, this is a big test for him. And him getting a one-on-one match with Kenny and beating him... So, he'll get basically two matches against Kenny Omega. Because he'll beat him in the G1 and then get the title match against him, based off my predictions. That's a big test for Tama Tonga. Looking at the rest of the block, we have the new champion, Juice Robinson. Look, Juice Robinson has made him... He has been in New Japan for a couple years... After going from NXT to C.J. Parker, betting on himself, becoming a New Japan Young Lion, he's now become an incredible promo of great fiery babyface, and he's the IWGP US Champion. I could definitely see Juice Robinson getting a win over Kenny Omega. You'd have Kenny set up where you'd have Naito as the third challenger with the one that ends up beating him. You'd have him face Naito, fighting in the Bullet Club with Tama Tonga. And the young upstart holding a title that Kenny was the first to ever hold in Juice Robinson. I think that would be very cool. Other matches I'm looking forward to here. Naito and Kenny Omega, when they wrestled in the finals of their block, the year that Kenny ended up winning the G1, beat Goto in the finals. That was one of the best matches I have ever seen. They are going to have an unbelievable match again this year. Obviously, how can you not be excited for Kenny Omega versus Kota Ibushi? I really like... um, I'm excited here for Naito versus Sonata, because you have that two members of Los Ingram and de Japón fighting each other, I think that's very cool, anytime that you have two stablemates who get along with each other having to fight in a match, in a big time situation like the G1, I think that's always cool when that is done. Zack Sabre Jr. is someone who I'm really not a fan of, I know a lot of people like him and really look forward to him wrestling all these top guys. I've never seen the buzz with Zack Saber Jr. I find his style kind of weird and slow and plain. Not a fan of his, so he doesn't really jump off the pa- uh, jump off the page to me like he does to a lot of other people. But Juice Robinson versus Kenny, I think, will be a very fun, cool match. Kota Bushi versus Sonata again. I think Sonata doesn't get enough credit for how good of a wrestler he is. Kota Bushi can is just so good. Putting him against all these interesting opponents, I think those two could have a very good match together. Hiroki Goto, also, he's the definition of a good hand. He'll have a good match with a lot of these guys. And then one guy who, to me, I always am impressed with when I watch him is the Pitbull Tomohiro Ishii. Him against Naito, him against Kenny, him against Ibushi. Any of those matches. I feel like you could put Naito, Kenny, and Ibushi. You know, it's against Sonata, against Robinson, against Goto, and against Ishii. Any combination of those three top guys against the combination of those other guys Will give you a very good match. Very much looking forward to the G1. Ultimately, as I mentioned, Okada I think takes A block, Abushi takes B block. After drawing Omegas, so there's no decisive winner to allow them to wrestle at Wrestle Kingdom. Okada wins the whole thing. He'll end up defending it against Jay White, against Tanahashi, and against Elgin. I think Omega will have lost to, in my mind, I believe he will have lost to Naito, who will beat him for the title will Have lost to Juice Robinson and he will have lost to Tama Tonga. He allows you to move on to Wrestle Kingdom with Tetsuya Naito versus Okada, a rematch of last year's Wrestle Kingdom main event or this year's Wrestle Kingdom main event in a role reversal and it allows you to have a simple story to be there for Kenny and Ibushi if you don't want to add any layers to it. So that's my predictions and preview as far as the G1. And New Japan is concerned. Um, again, even though, as I mentioned, it's still great that Naito will be walking into Wrestle Kingdom probably as the champion. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, like if, when there's someone who's just so white hot as he was or is for so long, for a couple years, he got that Wrestle Kingdom title shot as a challenger and lost. You kind of felt that that moment he should have came at some point based on the story and based off of how good he is and was. Just because of how it deserved it was. But maybe that comes in the future. Maybe he's still white hot then as he is now. But I just can't see that ever happening for Naito. And coming into the pay-per-view as champion is cool. But nothing can ever beat winning it in the main event. That's all there is to that. Let's move on now. We're going to switch gears to WWE. Extreme Rules this Sunday on the network. I'm looking forward to this show a lot. Let's just run down the card. I'll give you my preview and predictions. Then from there, we'll touch on some things I'm impressed with or like from Raw and SmackDown. So let's go back to Extreme Rules. Uh, Pre-show, we have the New Day versus Sanity in a tables match. I'm taking New Day in this one. Um, That initial attack they did while New Day was eating pancakes, I thought was awesome. And, you know, Sanity's lost a couple times already here and there, but whatever. They don't need to be Teflon. I think it's a cool dynamic between the two. I really enjoyed that five-on-five tag this past week um, with Team Hell No and New Day against Sanity and the Bludgeon Brothers. New Day are fantastic in the ring. Sanity are great. You know, Eric Young is just a solid veteran for so long. Killian Dane is one of the best big men there is in the company, and Alexander Wolfe does not get nearly, nearly the enough uh, enough credit for how good he has become working in the Performance Center. I think New Day takes the win here, though and that'll be the fun pre-show. All right, so let's move on to the main card now. Braun Strowman versus Kevin Owens in a steel cage match. Braun's getting the W here. Braun is not losing this match. Um his stuff with Kevin Owens has been so fun and hilarious. You know, like I don't care if the whole idea of oh, Braun is always getting the upper hand and Kevin Owens is running away from him and he looks scared and not strong. Who cares about that? It's fun. It's entertaining. The money in the bank stuff where he threw Owens off the top of the ladder after yelling in his face and Owens was just yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I thought the porta potty thing that they did in the main event of Raw two weeks ago was really funny. And just the entire, um, you know, how scared Owens is of Braun at every sight, I think it's just hilarious. Braun's going to get him here. Uh, He's going to get the win. No question in my mind about it. Staying with Raw here, Finn Balor versus the Constable Baron Corbin. I will say this. Baron Corbin is awesome to me. He is the total package. Great size for a big man. He moves so well. He's got this like holier-than-thou bully demeanor and style to how he speaks. Total package in every single way. But he kind of hit a wall before he got into this Constable um gimmick and he has knocked it out of the park he has done a phenomenal phenomenal job in this role this gimmick has rejuvenated his entire career he gets so much exposure as much or if not more than any other heel on the show every single week he feels important it's great he this is the perfect role for him you know him as a boss authority type like it's so ridiculous that you just hate the guy in, uh, like inherently just by seeing him, and then he has this "I'm better than you" uh, bully attitude about him. He wrestles in the stupid vest and pants. Like it's just it's just a great presentation. He's doing a great job with it, and allowing him to thrive at such a high level because he already has all the tools I mentioned before. It's altogether perfect in accentuating him and allowing him to thrive to a great level. With that being said, Finn Balor is getting the win here. Um, Finn is awesome. And even though this feud has kind of just become like, you know, I'm Baron Corbin and I'm big and I have power and I'm a bully and you're Finn Balor and small, it's still going to be a very good match. I like how in building it up these past few weeks, Corbin is getting win after win after win and promo time every single week. And as I mentioned, being one of the most exposed as far as just being on the show consistently, often, week after week, he's looking incredibly strong and Um And I think that's made this feud um, better than I guess a lot of people anticipated it to be. But I'm definitely saying that Balor gets the win here. Moving on to SmackDown Live, the United States Championship, Jeff Hardy taking on Shinsuke Nakamura. If Nakamura had not gotten bitten by the dog uh, at the house show in California, I think he'd already be the United States champion. I think Nakamura is taking the win here, and he will become the new U.S. champ. Simple as that. Keeping along with SmackDown, SmackDown Women's Championship, Carmella defending the title against Asuka. I definitely think Carmella is keeping the title here. She is. I have found her to be doing an incredible job in this role. She, the whole presentation, as far as how she looks, how she speaks, how she carries herself, having Ellsworth helping her, her overconfidence, her egotistical and irrational um, cockiness, everything about her title reign has been great. And there's no reason to end it now because you have Becky Lynch, who you've been building up for all these weeks, and... She's finally on a roll, and she's the perfect babyface to to dethrone a heel like Carmella. There's no reason to end it here with Asuka. I like Asuka. She's great, but she should not be the one to beat Carmella for this title. The only person who should be the one to beat Carmella for this title is Becky Lynch. You know, Whether it's Carmella and Becky one-on-one, or if it's Carmella, Becky, Asuka, and Charlotte in a four-way to get everyone on the card at SummerSlam, that's where I think the direction ends up being And I think Carmella retains it here. Obviously, Ellsworth will get involved. It'll be in a screwy manner. She's not going to beat her clean. But Carmella is my prediction there. Now we'll go to the Raw women's title match. Alexa Bliss defending against Nia Jax. Obviously, Alexa's retaining the title here. The only reason she got the title was because there is no better foil for Ronda Rousey in the entire company, whether it's Raw, SmackDown, or NXT, than Alexa Bliss. The overconfident, bitchy heel who stole her title and is just going to be an absolute, just unbearable, you know, talks a lot of shit, but is scared to get in the ring with her heel champion. It's perfect. You know, that segment where she had, where she ragdolled her, got suspended for beating the shit out of her and then beating the shit out of Kurt Angle was the perfect um, starting point for their feud. That's obviously going to be a big time SummerSlam match. One of the most promoted matches on that show and advertised. Alexa's getting the win here over Nia Jax. Ronda will be ringside, so I fully expect Ronda to show up uh, just coming out of the crowd and probably just beating the shit out of Alexa at the end of the match or at least hopping the the rail to attempt to get to her, maybe with Alexa inciting her or not, uh, with Alexa scurrying away. But either way, Alexa's getting the win here, and Ronda will in some way attempt to or actually attack her after the match. Matt Hardy and Bray Wyatt versus the B-Team for the Raw Tag Team titles. The B-Team are awesome. I think they're very funny and entertaining. You can tell that Bo and Curtis just really give it their all no matter what they've given. Every single time they're on TV. It's been so funny to watch them. They were great at the live event I went to last Friday. Um, Matt and Bray are getting the win here. Matt and Bray, are. there's something special with them. They're so unique and so fun and people love them. And you look at the rest of that raw tag division, you know, Matt and Bray are your standout team. Everyone else are just, you know, kind of run through a monthly challenger types. The B team, they basically been feuding with them before Money in the Bank, but they didn't defend the titles on that pay-per-view. So they got two months out of this feud, but the B team, that's a monthly challenger feud. The Revival, you can go a little longer with that, but again, that's not a team that's going to beat Matt and Bray. The, the long-term... Only team I can see dethroning Matt and Bray for the tag titles are the Authors of Pain. But until they want to do that, which should be a while, because Matt and Bray are a special act that they have going on right now, and there is no reason to end that title reign anytime soon. And point blank, you know, the Authors of Pain, you know, they're big and they're awesome, but the crowds don't give a shit about them. And quite frankly, why should they? They're these big guys who come in and beat jobbers up. Great, you know they should have kept Paul Ellering with them just to have a mouthpiece for them to actually, you know, for the crowd to invest in not liking them. And they're sporadically on Raw week after week, so there's not really a consistent carryover episode to episode to build upon what they've done. So there's going to be some time to take to build the Officers of Pain into worthy champions, taking the titles from Matt and Bray. But for now. Matt and Bray are getting the win over the B-team, and they're going to stay champion champions, hopefully, for a very long time. Now let's get to the top matches on the show. Let's go to Raw again for the Intercontinental Championship. Dolph Ziggler defending the title against Seth Rollins with Drew McIntyre at ringside in a 30-minute Ironman match. I think Dolph is retaining here, and I think the way it happens is either Drew McIntyre or excuse me, either Dean Ambrose or Jason Jordan returns and um, comes out to sort of even the odds with McIntyre being in Ziggler's corner and, you know, either deliberately or by accident costs Seth the match. It costs him a fall, disallows him from getting a crucial pin, whatever it may be. Um, you know, by either turning heel and, you know, just beating him up or just, oh, I accidentally bumped into you and you got pinned or I bumped into the ref while he was counting a pinfall sort of thing. I don't know who it's going to be, whether it's going to be Dean or Jordan, but there is there was no reason to take the title off of Seth Rollins while he was that hot unless he had you know, a big feud planned for him for SummerSlam um, with someone like Dean Ambrose or Jason Jordan. And based off of the injury timeline given with Dean Ambrose when he got out or got hurt with the injury to his arm around November, December, you know, like a nine-month injury, this is his time frames, you know, when he was going to return. This is around the time frame for where that return date would lie. And for Jason Jordan, he's probably been ready for a couple weeks now, but there's no reason to bring him back before extreme rules. He's been gone now too for over about 6 months at this point. Uh just under 6 months. Whoever it may be, Dean or Jordan, they're going to come out, they're going to try to even the odds with Drew, and they're going to end up costing Seth the match. Ziggler will retain and move on to SummerSlam. Obviously, the end game with Ziggler is Drew McIntyre beating him for the Intercontinental title. I don't know if that's going to be already quickly happening at SummerSlam or if they're going to try to prolong it as long as they can, but that's the obvious end game there. But again, Ziggler will retain and Seth will move on to Dean or Jordan by way of them costing him this match. Keep along with Raw. This will probably be the main event match. Probably be the main event match of the entire Extreme Rules pay-per-view. Roman Reigns versus Bobby Lashley. Now, if you had told me that this match was happening um, three weeks ago, a month ago, I would not have been excited for it in the sense that I thought that there is no salvaging Bobby Lashley as a babyface. And as good as Roman is with how indifferent and apathetic everyone was to Bobby Lashley, this match had no chance of um, being accepted or surviving uh, in terms of in front of a live audience. But they have somehow, I can't believe they did it. Lashley has been saved. You know, he is credible. People are a little bit into him. He's still bland as can be and generic, but he showed a little bit of attitude with not respecting Roman. Uh, with the nice little segment they did where he got in Roman's face begging him to call him out, leading to the pull-apart brawl. That promo he did later in the show where he looked into the camera and said, believe that. So there's a little bit of attitude to him where he's otherwise just robotic and plain. But simply put, I think that even though it is not directly promoted as such, whoever wins this match, I think it's going to be Roman. I think this is going to basically serve as a pseudo number one contenders match because... You know, Roman said in the promo last week, you know, I'm going to beat Lashley and move on to bigger and better things. What has he been talking about since WrestleMania, being, or since the greatest Royal Rumble? He's the uncrowned Universal Champion. I don't care what any dirt sheet says, what they say on TV or whatever, or what he, him being at UFC, whatnot. Brock Lesnar is going to be at SummerSlam. Brock Lesnar is going to be defending that Universal title, and it's going to be against Roman Reigns. I see like a 5% chance that it's him, Roman, and Lashley in a triple threat, but I just see it as him and Roman one-on-one for that title. And who better for Roman to beat going into that than La- at the moment than Lashley? Um, so I think Roman's getting the win here. I think it'll be a good match. They'll just beat the shit out of each other. And I still, still can't believe that Bobby Lashley is a babyface has somewhat survived and somewhat been salvaged because with that Sami Zayn feud, it just looked dead and irreparable as can be. But I think Roman takes the win here. I think this match is made the main event of the pay-per-view. And I think Roman moves on to challenge Brock Lesnar for the Universal title. And now for the two big matches on the show from SmackDown Live. Um, we have... The WWE Championship, AJ Styles defending the title against Rusev. Obviously, AJ is retaining the title here. I think he's going to retain it here, and then he'll have a three-pay-per-view feud with Samoa Joe, starting at SummerSlam, going into September, uh, culminating at Hell in a Cell. That's a perfect opponent for him to a nice, big, prolonged feud with. Joe has not been on TV consistently the last couple weeks. There's no story for him right now. May as well just keep him in the wings until you want him to get out there with AJ for SummerSlam. Um, Rusev is great. He's fantastic. He's done a great job embracing himself. It's just this, I'm the heel. I want the championship. I deserve to be the WWE champion. I've never had a championship match one-on-one before like this. I'm going to come in. I'm going to beat your ass. I'm going to take the title, and that's that. That's Rusev's MO here. Him on commentary, also a little side note here. Him on commentary this past week on SmackDown... Um, introducing himself as Rusev from Rusev Day, like he does on Twitter, and it's like, oh, this is Aiden with Aiden English sitting right next to him, just hilarious. Rusev is a national tre- uh, treasure. We do not deserve him, um, but Styles is getting the win here. Rusev is going to be motivated as hell. This is going to be an incredibly good match. You know, AJ Styles is basically the perfect pro wrestler. He's amazing. He's the best wrestler in the world. I don't care what anyone says about it being Okada or Kenny. It's AJ Styles. Styles will retain the title here, and I can see him holding it for a good while longer. And then for me, the last match here, the match I am most anticipating, Daniel Bryan and Kane, Team Hell No, challenging the Bludgeon Brothers for the tag team titles. Did I expect Team Hell No to be a thing when Bryan came back? Absolutely not. Am I happy that it is? Absolutely yes. They are so much fun. So entertaining and funny, you know, with Brian going back at him about you know you tried to abduct my wife and you tombstone me on the floor. You don't have you know like when Kane said I have your back, or when Kane said you're like a brother to me, and Brian said you know you um you buried your under your brother alive, you set your brother on fire, stuff like that. It's just very funny. And then with the in sync stuff this past week on SmackDown, and then the best part of it, Daniel Bryan summoning the flames, doing Kane's pyro. They just are just. They personify and show what is great about wrestling. It's just pure entertainment and fun and enjoyment and very good in the ring. There's nothing else you could possibly want. The only question here is, do they win the titles right away, or is there some screwy thing where they end up prolonging the title win and they win it at SummerSlam? Because the end here is them winning the tag team titles. I'm going to say that they win the titles immediately here, Um, and I think that they become the tag team champions on this show by beating the Bludgeon Brothers. It would not surprise me if they decide to hold off another pay-per-view and have them win the titles at SummerSlam, um, and the Bludgeon Brothers retain one way or another in a screwy way because they're not getting cleanly beat in their first tag team title match. But either way, they're going to become champion. I think it happens at Extreme Rules, Um, and I think Team Hell No become the SmackDown tag team champions. And overall, yep, that's all my predictions for Extreme Rules. I look at this card, you know, this 11-match card. I'm looking at it right now, and pretty much every single match I am interested in and looking forward to. I think it's going to be a very good show, and Money in the Bank was an awesome pay-per-view. I don't know if Extreme Rules would be as good as Money in the Bank was, but I expect it to be very close. I expect it to be a really fun show with 11 really good matches um, to look forward to. Now, just for me, quick sort of um, things going on Raw and SmackDown that I like at the moment or just things that I've noticed are happening. From there, I'll do a sort of state of 205 Live kind of thing, and then we'll wrap it up with some talk about all-in Flip Gordon, Cody Rhodes, Nick Aldis, and the NWA Heavyweight Championship. Once again, um, this is Brad Clear on After the Final Whistle, and let's just keep it going. So... I already talked earlier about Baron Corbin as the constable, how great that is, how it's rejuvenated his career. Um, Keeping along with Raw and Heels, who I like that what they've got going right now, I like that Mojo Rawley is getting uh, emphasis and focus put upon him. I think that there really is something there with Mojo. He has this sort of, um, he speaks with such conviction and intensity and you know he just is so serious and focused and intense at all times and just he has this sort of presence about him and you kind of have to take note when you see him and you can't take your eyes off of him when he's in that zone um beating shit out of guys and talking uh talking shit because he is an unbelievably good promo We saw that in those little Twitter promos on his phone that he did with the Zack Ryder feud back on SmackDown last year, or earlier this year, late last year, but he is able, you know, there's like Samoa Joe, for example, someone like Samoa Joe speaks with such conviction and can, and so much just talking down to his opponent, not to the same extent, but Mojo kind of has that same thing going where he talks down to his opponents, he shits on them he shits on them, like, in just this way of that, you know, Mojo's talking shit, he's talking it with such conviction and intensity, and you know he's right, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he gets there in the ring, you know, he's he's got solid size, he's big, he's got really good athleticism. Is he the most polished guy in the ring? No, he's not. But he's really athletic, and he moves very well for a big man, and the more he's put in there with top-notch opponents and given more time, that's only going to improve. And you add that, that potential... Um, improved in-ring ability to his at this point elite promo ability there's there is a lot to like with mojo and i think once that as i just mentioned that in-ring ability comes along mojo is going to be someone who has the total package and once he got moved to raw in the superstar Shakeup. You know, obviously, Chad Gable was the guy I wanted to get a lot of focus put upon him because point blank, he's the most underutilized and underrated guy in the company, but that that's a separate point. Um, I, I thought that when Mojo got moved to Raw, it was a perfect chance to give him a renewed focus, um, a little bit of a push, and just sort of you know, see if that great promo ability um, that he had in those Twitter videos and whatnot continues to translate and he just continues to improve. There's obviously an effort being made to keep him or to make him into a thing. He beat Bobby Roode clean, one, two, three, at a house show in MSG last Saturday. I'll get into Bobby Roode in a second. He didn't. He just absolutely dominated. No way, Jose. For these last couple weeks, you know, talking down to him, condemning him, speaking with such conviction and intensity, beating the shit out of the uh, the guys in his conga line. You know, like that, that stupid Todd guy from two weeks ago, talking down to him throwing the guy in the costume over the stairs uh, two weeks ago and then beating Noe Jose last week. I think there's a lot to like with Mojo. I think a lot of people would groan at that, but how many people are better than him on the mic right now? Like, he's in the top echelon, and if not the top echelon, right above that second tier as far as guys who are good on the mic in the company. And he's someone who's new and fresh and has not been in that high-profile role before. And you're always looking to create and make new guys who can fill that high-profile role. I think there's a lot to like. I think he has a lot of upside. And I think he's going to reach it. Big things in the future coming from Mojo Rawley. Keeping with who I just mentioned on Raw, let's go with Bobby Roode here. You can see with um, how he took the fall in the tag match with Finn... Um, against Corbin and Elias, with how the two weeks before that he wasn't even on Raw, and with how he lost to Mojo at a house show at MSG last Saturday, at this point, you know, whether it's good or bad, I'm not saying either way, Bobby Roode is, at this point, a glorified jobber. He's a guy who is looked at and obviously seen, based off of all these things, that, okay, he's a babyface of the crowd, likes And they'll sing along and look super vested into him. But he's the guy who's going to take the fall in the match where we want to protect the other babyface. Or we want this heel who we're trying to build up to get a little bit of recognition. The crowd likes Bobby Roode. Let's have him take the fall to that guy. You know, he he doesn't consistently get put on Raw, and when he does, he takes the fall. He lost at a house show. You know, that does not, a babyface like Bobby Roode very rarely will lose at a house show. I, I don't, he's like, um. he's basically like, obviously, No Way Jose is like your Adam Rose tier level, babyface who gets the crowd going, and then, you know, is there to take the fall. Bobby Roode is basically like an upper tier level of that. Like, he's the, um at this point, he's kind of like the jobber to the stars, or like the jobber to the guy who's being built up role. You know, kind of like what um, what Dolph Ziggler was in for so many years, is like the jobber to the stars heel you can see that Bobby Roode in the babyface role, where the crowd sings along and loves him, and he smiles and all that, and he does the glorious shtick. That's where he's at. And I was a proponent of Bobby Roode being a babyface, coming to the main roster based off of you know people want to sing along to his song, people want to cheer for him. But there is never any depth added to him outside of he says the word glorious, he has an awesome theme song, and that's it. Like there's nothing else to him. He smiles. He says the word glorious every turn. He's got an awesome entrance that you can sing along to. There's nothing that you can latch onto with Bobby Roode outside of his theme song. And once you get to, like, even initially with the whole thing with Dolph Ziggler on SmackDown when he first came up, it was all about his entrance. His entrance, his entrance, his entrance. And then he did the 50-50 stuff with him and Ziggler where they wrestled each other and feuded for a while. His whole main roster tenure, there hasn't been enough of an effort made to add any edge to him or add any layers to him. So if you're disappointed at him being in this position, he was always going to end up in it based off of how he was presented or how he was um, sort of written or um, brought along. Because he became a guy who had nothing outside of his catchphrase and theme song. Again, he's 40 years old. He's really good as a heel, but there's so many heels on both sides of the roster, you can't push every guy, so maybe that's their best use for him right now. I don't know. But regardless of what you think of it, that is the current situation with him because he's not a high-profile guy on the show in the sense of a guy who gets wins and is featured every week, and he serves the purpose to take the fall. That's just the situation right now. Moving to Smackdown real quick, Andrade Cien Almas and Sin Cara's match last uh, this past Tuesday after weeks of it being kind of put off, put off. Fantastic. Whenever he gets the chance to have some time in his matches and to show what he's really capable of, Sin Cara is good. He's he's a, like obviously the roster is so deep that there's not really any reason to, you know, make him a top guy and to put a lot of effort or not a top guy, but like in, like a featured guy who you put a lot of effort into. But as a guy who once in a while, once he gets the chance, you say, hey, you know, go 10 minutes, you know, 12 minutes, whatever, and have a good match, he can do that. And he delivers every single time he's given the chance. You know, he had a good string of matches with Baron Corbin last year when Baron Corbin was U.S. champ. Um, and he's the perfect opponent for Andrade. I know SmackDown is a really tight uh, time frame with the big roster they have, so it's hard to get guys on every single week. Um, But, like, you know, when you have established guys like Samoa Joe, who you're kind of obviously waiting to put him into a high-profile WWE Championship feud, you can afford to, you know, put him on the back burner, have him off TV a couple weeks, and that be that. But for Andrade, a guy who was the NXT champion and really flourished towards the end of his NXT tenure as the champ with Zelina Vega, on the main roster, you have to build him up. It's kind of like with the Authors of Pain. You have to get guys like Andrade, who is obviously, you know... Big star, main event, you know, championship match at WrestleMania potential. You have to get him every single week featured because if you do it sporadically, you know, where he's on one week, but he's not on for two. For those who have not been exposed to him before, there's really not, as I mentioned with the author's pain, you can't build off of anything from the previous week. There's no continuity with it. Like look at Braun Strowman when he got built up every single week. I know he was on Ross. That's different. There was the time to do it. But every single week, he was beating up a jobber. So, you know, okay, here's the Braun Strowman time. And then you, you know, you knew what he did. You knew how he acted. You were able to, like, you know, become aware of Braun Strowman and know what he was all about and what he does. With someone like Andrade, you know, a lot of people have seen him in NXT, but a lot of people also have not because they don't watch NXT. If you don't have him on week after week after week, With Zelina Vega, so you don't have Zelina Vega talking him up every single week, so you don't know what she's about and how she helps him out. You don't really grasp him, you don't grasp his presentation as a whole, and you can't get invested in him. And for someone who has such massive upside like that, when he's initially starting out, you have to devote TV time every single week to him. Um, You know, whether that means taking Rusev off TV for one week, or, you know, Jeff Hardy, Nakamura don't get a week on TV. Established guys don't need to be on TV every single week when it's SmackDown that we're talking about based off of how limited time is. Andrade does. Even if it's just a promo, you know, not one of those little um, things where they're doing the phone promos, like a backstage interview is fine. Just something to get across how Zelina Vega is his business manager, how he's all about going straight to the top, and how impressive and vicious he is in the ring. If you can accentuate that in some way every single week, in some form you got to do it um because otherwise you kind of don't have the ability to build him up and to have the crowd be consistently invested in him from the get-go because they don't know when they're going to see him and once they do they're like oh when was the last time we saw him i don't really remember what he was doing what he was like you have to build that continuity in the minds of the audience all right, so let's move on now. We're going to head on to the state of 205 Live. 205 Live has become, to me, since, you know, after the WrestleMania, or the tournament leading up to WrestleMania, it kind of went through a few weeks where it was kind of like, you know, not that great, a little eh. But the last probably six weeks, it or like four, five, six weeks, it has picked up, and it's must-watch every single week. What 205 Live does better than... Any other programming on the WWE's slate of content is it delivers a top-notch elite main event match. Think of all the times that Mustafa Ali and Buddy Murphy have wrestled each other in the main event. And think of how every single time they have, you come away from it just wowed out of your mind. Their match in the main event of 205 Live, not this Tuesday, but last Tuesday. um, So I guess that would be... July 3rd or so. That's, for me, the match of the year for any WWE show. You know, including NXT, Raw, SmackDown, pay-per-view, UK tournament even. Does not matter. That's the match of the year. You have the best, in my mind, you know, William Regal's a great GM on NXT, but Drake Maverick, to me, is the perfect general manager because... He solely serves the purpose of just talking up the roster. He straightened down the line, you know, like on Raw and SmackDown. Even though you have a babyface general manager, there obviously, you know, can, you know, you see Paige with Carmella, you know, always putting her at odds, or Kevin Owens with Kurt Angle on Raw or on NXT and 125 Live. Obviously, you see that trend with Triple H running both shows. It's just straight down the line, you know, they try to tell the heels or the babyfaces, you know, here's what you got to do, here's how good they are, here's how great you are, blah, 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 blah. Drake Maverick solely serves to build up his talent, and he solely serves to be straight down the line and tell each guy, hey, you want this, then you have to do this, whether you're a babyface or a heel. That's all there is to it. That's all a general manager needs to do. They are not a focus of the show. They are there to move the show along, allow it to progress, and to allow the talent to be sort of accentuated and um, built up. And that's what he does. He's perfect at it. One thing, though, that if you watch 205 Live every single week, you notice that Mustafa Ali is the guy for that show. And I tweeted this um, earlier today and then last week after the match with Buddy Murphy. Mustafa Ali does not get nearly the amount of talk that he should get for being one of the best in-ring guys in the world right now, and one of the best babyfaces in the world right now. Every single time he gets out there for a big match, he delivers, and then some. He goes balls to the wall with these crazy high spots, and in-ring, what he does is he's so good at taking a crowd that may not know him or may not be invested in him He can take that crowd and have them on their feet by the end of his match. Not even saying a word, just him wrestling. We saw it with him and Murphy last week. The crowd didn't give a shit when either of those guys came out. Which sucks, but that was the truth. By the end of the match, they were on their feet screaming, clapping for both guys, chanting, this is awesome, 205 Live. Because it was fantastic. Mustafa Ali is a pure white meat Babyface, he is just as pure as a babyface can be. Every time he gets a promo, you know when he looks into the camera and does that backstage promo on two o five live before a match, or posts a video to Twitter um, for a promo, he is just so genuine, and you feel and you connect with everything he's saying. You invest, you can feel invested in him, and you want to root for him because not only is he an incredible wrestler who just is. Things that normal humans shouldn't be able to do, but he's just someone who you can't help but like and root for. And there's no one else on 205 Live who does that. Cedric Alexander's the champion. He beat Mustafa Ali at WrestleMania for that title. I said this at the time and I still maintain it. Ali should have won that title. You know, Cedric's great in the ring, don't get me wrong, but... He's as bland and generic as can be when it comes to him on as promos or as him as just a character, speaking, gimmick, whatever. There's It's just, I'm Cedric Alexander. I'm a great wrestler. That's it. On the mic, as generic and bland as can be, he doesn't really have anything that makes you like want to cheer for him or get super invested in him. Perfect example. Two days ago, he wrestled Hideo Tommy in the main event for the Cruiserweight title. Obviously, I'm not pinning this all on him, but you watch when Mustafa Ali main events and you watch when Cedric main events. They both get the crowd more invested than they were in the beginning, but it's not even close that the crowd is way more invested by the end in Ali's matches than they are Cedric's. Maybe okay, and obviously Hideo played a part in this match, but the crowd did never never got like super crazy invested in that match between Cedric and Hideo, which was a good match. When Cedric speaks and just looks at the camera and talks, you don't really feel or connect with what he's saying. You feel like it's just this guy just like... You know, he's just this guy just talking. It's not someone who's speaking to you and someone who you believe every word they're saying and can't help but get behind. He's just kind of generic and bland. And maybe since Ali is so good at being, you know, an elite babyface you can connect to that you can build out the card by having Cedric being just this no-nonsense, I'm-the-man-beat-me ace, and Ali can be your just, um, this, like, heart, this, like, um, this all-heart, you know, non-stop, give it his all babyface who wrestles guys like Murphy, Hideo, whoever, um, below that to provide, you know, a really good secondary feud behind Cedric. Because in the role of, I guess, not necessarily being a babyface or a heel and just being, you know, I'm the best, come beat me, I think Cedric can thrive. But if we're looking at him just being like the pure babyface, it's not even close that Mustafa is better than him. And Mustafa feels more important than him. You feel more invested in Mustafa. And if you watch their matches, the crowds just care more about him. He feels more important. He feels more like the biggest star on the show. We'll see what goes moving forward, but that's just how I feel watching the show. You look at the roster as a whole, I think right now it's gotten to the point, you know, with it being a 45-50 minute show every week, they have a deep roster. Um, Buddy Murphy, oh my goodness is he good. Obviously being the biggest cruiserweight that they have, athleticism, power, strength, agility, He gets in the ring, you just kind of, like, you watch him mix it up, and you watch how he moves and how strong he is and how fast he is and how agile he is. You know, I had someone who, um, a friend of mine who just does not watch 205 Live much, and I said, you know, last week him and Ali were wrestling. said, hey, you know, check out this match. Tell him what you think. He had seen Ali before. He said, hey, check out Murphy. See what you think of him. Got back to me afterwards, and he was just like, holy shit, this guy is an absolute beast. I've never seen someone who just is... The total package, like that, moves well, like that, looks like that at that size, and is as strong as him. He's the best heel on that roster, when they say the Juggernaut, he is exactly that. And I'm so happy to see him thriving like this after kind of being in NXT aimlessly forever. Looking at the rest of the roster, it's kind of like heel heavy, because you look at the heel side, you obviously have Buddy Murphy. Um, you have Leo Rush, who they just debuted. They're building up with, uh, Akira Tozawa. TJP, Hideo Itami, Drew Gulak, Brian Kendrick, Tony Nese. You look at the baby, Jack Gallagher and Brian, I said Brian Kendrick, Jack Gallagher also. Look at the babyface side. There's Cedric and Mustafa Ali are your top tier babyfaces. And then after that, you know, you have Tozawa, who... He's good, but if we're talking about investing in someone and caring about them, like, I love Tozawa and he's great, but there's no reason in the world to care about him or get invested in him as a babyface. There's just not. His best role for this show, in my mind, he has great matches. Every time he's in there, as a good hand type who can have you know solid feuds to build up other guys, he's perfect in that role. But the point is, is that the babyface depth versus the heel depth is significantly lacking. Um... Jack Gallagher, right? When they first started 205 Live, Jack Gallagher, um, you know, he had, he was kind of this like, he had the really funny music and he had the rainbow tights and he kind of was just so fun to watch and enjoyable. He had the umbrella and he had the spot in the Royal Rumble. He was featured in a WWE 2K commercial. He would do the thing where all of his teammates would do a suicide dive and then he would kind of run up like he would and would just step onto the apron and do like a double axe handle. They made the worst possible decision in turning him heel when they did. All he is as a heel is a basic, going nowhere, generic, I'm an evil British guy heel. As a babyface, he was fun, unique, kind of quirky, different, and kind of like, was he was a little funny. He was kind of like, yeah, this guy's fun. I like him. As a heel, you're just like, no, basic, evil British guy. I think it would really add to the depth of the show and improve the show if they could turn him babyface. And basically have him be what he was then. When he captured everyone's hearts in the Mayon cl- or in the Mayon Classic in the Cruiserweight Classic, he was not this generic evil Brit. He was the funny, you know, quirky British guy. That is the Jack Alaher that we like. As a heel, there's nothing to care about with him. He's boring. He's dull, and he's bland. It's a babyface, there's no one else like him. You look at you know because you have Lucha House Party. Lucha House Party are a great trio of babyfaces. But Kalisto is the only one who can really thrive in a singles role. So in that sense, you have two top babyfaces, then you have a good hand type in Tozawa, and then you have Kalisto. That's really it. Um, There's no one on the heel side who is, you know, someone you look at who you could, besides Gallagher, who you look at and turn babyface and think that the crowd would be invested and care about. Um, Going along for babyfaces, like Noam Dar just came back and Noam Dar is positioned as a babyface on this show. I don't see any way that Noam Dar is going to thrive as a babyface on this show, because kind of like what I tweeted about at my Twitter, um, at Brad Clear, K-L-I-E-R underscore, um, he's kind of like Zach Gibson uh, from the UK tournament, in that Zach Gibson is a geographically effective heel, in that he's a heel who can thrive to an extreme extent in the UK. How much people hate him there will not translate to the United States or all around the world. People love Noam Dar in the UK and the European wrestling scene. As a weird sleaze type, he was hilarious. As a heel, eh, he's kind of whatever. Um, as, a, as as No, I take that back. As a heel in the United States, he's okay. The sleaze type, he was great. But as a babyface in the United States, no one's going to kind of get him, and it's not going to resonate with the United States audience and the worldwide audience. So in that sense, you know, we saw how much people loved him on the UK show as a babyface. He is the re- like a babyface version of Zach Gibson in that he is a geographically effective babyface. Um, I know he's got the thing going with TJP right now. I would honestly just have him be a UK brand guy. I think on the UK brand, he's one of he can be one of your top top guys. On two hundred five live, he's just a guy who I don't really see resonating as a babyface and as a heel, you already have so many heels and all he would be is another kind of just like, you know, basic make card heel, which you don't really need another of because you have so many of them. So I'm not really sure what the best use of is of him is with 205 live. As I just said, I don't really think that there is any use for him outside of the UK division. But overall, the point is, even though I kind of sounded critical here with alignment of guys, the in-ring quality is there every single week. When you look at next week; you have Leo Rush against Tazawa, and you have TJP against um, Noam Dar. Like I just mentioned, those are two high-quality matches. You know, will people be invested in them? That remains to be seen. But you're getting high in-ring quality every single week. The show flows along, and the main event match gets significant time every single week. It's structured very well. It's a must watch show every single week. And yeah, I think 205 Live is in a great state right now. Great GM. You have an unbelievable top guy in Mustafa Ali. You have a good champion in Cedric Alexander. And you have a great top heel in Buddy Murphy. So, with the infusion of talent that will eventually come along, you know, I think Oni Lorcan eventually will end up on that show. There is a lot to like. And. Um, it's only going to keep going up from here. Alright, moving along here. I uh, want to touch on this real quick. Um, Caitlyn, uh, formerly a Divas Champion in WWE. She left the company in 2014. It was announced by ESPN yesterday that she will be returning to the WWE in the May Young Classic. This is awesome news. I was always a fan of hers when she was in the WWE as the Divas Champion. I thought she was kind of, at the time, you know, before the Women's Revolution kind of went down, her and AJ Lee were the best women on the roster. Had a wicked spear, you know. Was kind of a powerhouse in the ring type. I really liked her. She was a good, she was a good hand, good babyface type. Really fun to watch. You know, she left. She had the whole fitness thing going on. She had a lot of uh, personal issues, which she well documented um, on her social media and YouTube and all that. She's got her company with Celestial Bodies going on. So she's done a lot outside of wrestling. But her coming back for the Mae Young Classic is kind of just like a, it's like she's coming home. You know, like she went out and did a lot of things outside of wrestling, but. She never should have left. You know, like we all wanted her to stay and kind of was a little disappointing when she left. And it's great to have her back uh, for the Mayon Classic in that kind of Brian Kendrick, uh, Serena Deeb role of the veteran for, I guess, one last run. We'll see if it goes past the Mayon Classic, but I'm very excited for her to come back and to see what she can bring to the table against what is a significantly higher quality field of women that she will be wrestling than what she wrestled when she was a full-time WWE uh competitor because outside of her and AJ Lee at the time, there wasn't a lot of great emphasis put on the women's division and there was not necessarily a ton of great or as much depth of top quality female wrestlers like there is right now. Um, so it will be cool to see how she does in that environment against the top notch opponents and how she's positioned as like sort of the Kendrick of the tournament. Um, last thing we'll touch on here and then we'll wrap up the episode All in on September 1st, we had Cody Rhodes, um, you know, it became known that he would be challenging from the NWA's world title at All In. The champion right now, Nick Aldis, who is as bland and generic as can be. Like, he looks the part as you're, you know, know, wearing a suit-looking nice world-traveling champion, but in the ring, meh, talker, meh, look. Pretty similar to everyone else, he's very just like he's he's very generic, and so it was cool the idea of him wrestling Cody for the NWA or him defending the title against Cody, the NWA's heavyweight championship. But like, there's no. I was cool for the fact that Cody would be winning the title, not for the fact that he was wrestling Nick Aldis. But now they've done the best thing possible: this month-long story of Flip Gordon trying to get booked for All In on being the elite. You know it's running out of time. It's basically culminating now. Nick Aldis will have to defend the NWA's world title against Flip Gordon. Which Flip Gordon, if he wins that title, he's taking it to All In to face Cody in the main event for the NWA's heavyweight title. So after all these months of Cody not wanting Flip Gordon to get booked for All In, how great would that be for Flip Gordon to win the title that Cody is wanting to uh, wants to win at All In? And the only way he can is by wrestling the guy who he'd been trying to keep off the show for so long in Flip Gordon. That would just be just a great culmination to that story. And I think it's something that I and many others had wanted to see for a long time as the culmination to the story. But I think I speak for a lot of people in saying I never thought that this is what was going to happen. I'm so happy that it is. Um, And I'm happy that it is because... One, I I don't give a shit about Nick Aldis. Like, there's no reason to care about him at all. And Flip Gordon versus Cody in the main event of All In to culminate. You know, Flip wanted to get booked this whole time and didn't. But he won the title and took it upon himself. And now Cody has no choice but to allow him to be on the show. And he is going to have to wrestle him to get the title that he covets to hold. And Flip Gordon, you know, obviously the prominence uh, in him came as a result of him being one of the main characters of being the Elite. But he has become one of the top independent, well, if you consider him independent, uh, wrestlers in the U.S. You know, incredible high flyer. You know, he did a great job of the best of Super Juniors in New Japan. He's a little, he's got some muscle to him. He looks great. He's really one of the best U.S.-based. Um, we'll call him an independent wrestler that there is right now. He's got to win this title. If he loses the title, I don't really know where they go with um, the story of him trying to get booked. I'm not sure what the next avenue you could take for that would be. But how great would that be? You know, Cody wouldn't let him get booked. Wouldn't let him get booked. You know, Flip even asking at the mock funeral for Joey Ryan to get booked for All-In. Um, you know, he went through the mixed tag against MJF uh, MJ, uh, MJF and Madison Rain with Brandy as his partner. He wrestled Cody at the Hammerstein Ballroom. He did all these things. You know, he lost a poll to Cody's dog, Pharaoh. He did all of these things to get booked for All-In. None of them worked, and now he got a title shot for the NWA's heavyweight title, the title that is, no matter who the champion is, will be defended at all-in against Cody. Um, and the, the way that they showed that Flip Gordon was the next challenger for Nick Aldis was hilarious because the uh, the NWA has this 10 pounds of gold series that they do on social media and YouTube that they release. So they had all this, you know, he retained his title, management came out to show him his next um, challenger, and he feels that they don't respect him, so he wouldn't open it. Then he got interviewed and he opened it and he was almost in this like disbelief, but not like angry disbelief, and like a joking like, "Oh, you got to be fucking kidding me!" disbelief that that Flip Gordon was his next challenger, um, and he just had this like this resigned laugh and grin of just like, "This is ridiculous" on his face. And then you had Cody tweeting responding to that video saying, "Are you fucking kidding me?" It was hilarious. Um, I fully expect Flip Gordon to win. I fully expect him to take it to All In. Um, and that's what's good about All In and how they're obviously filling out the car in their strategy. You have a lot of familiar names in the independent wrestling scene, Japanese from New Japan Wrestling, from Ring of Honor, wherever. What you have to do to make the show unique and stand out, obviously it's sold out, so you don't need to um, you know, do these matches to attract people because it's sold out. But as far as making the show as big of a success as it can be, you have to do unique matches that can only happen at All In, or first time ever matches. Obviously, it's geared most towards the being the elite audience. Um, Marty Scurll is wrestling Okada. That's not going to happen in New Japan because Marty's a junior. You know, you're not going to see that match anywhere else, and you haven't seen it before outside of you know maybe it happening in a tag match. Um, Cody versus Flip Gordon. You know, they've been rivals on being the elite, and now they're finally going to wrestle each other probably what's going to end up happening with Cody uh uh, Kota Bushi and Kenny Omega probably going to wrestle Pentagon and Phoenix who wouldn't want to see that and where else can you see that happen Adam or Hangman Page finally wrestling Joey Ryan after the months-long build-up with the story and being the elite uh with you know Page quote-unquote jokingly murdering Joey Ryan you know they've they're doing a very good job in that they obviously recognize that you have to have first time ever matches, matches that can only happen on that show, or stuff that's been built up on being the elite. And, you know, they've been building this up for so long with the Paige and Ryan stuff, with Flip Gordon and Cody. Um, and there's so much incredible, unique possibilities on this show as far as matchups you could do that have never been seen before um, or just have no chance of ever happening otherwise. I think it's going to be a rousing success if they follow that pattern. Marty versus Okada is a great start. You know, you have SCU on there. You have Jay Lethal on there. You have the female talent, Chelsea Green, Britt Baker. Rey Mysterio is on the show. So much incredible talent. So much possibility for fresh, cool matchups. I'm very excited for All In. I'm really interested to see how they end up, because they are broadcasting it and distributing it uh, with Don Callis and Kevin Kelly as the announcers. It's gonna be cool to see, you know, how I'm interested to see how they present it, whether it's an internet pay per view, Twitch, being the elite YouTube channel, whatever it is. Um, it's gonna be a very good show. I'm very excited for it. I still fully expect CM Punk to show up at the show, not in a wrestling capacity, but just in sort of a, you know, he shows up for the crowd, does a promo, you know, about you know how cool it is that All In is happening and about it being in Chicago and all that, just to have an appearance in front of the live crowd. Um, So, yeah, that's about it after nearly an hour and a half of the state of wrestling here on After the Final Whistle. Again, thank you for listening along with me, your host, Brad Clear. Keep checking here on podcast.com for more episodes. I know our next podcast coming up uh, will be an NBA Summer League. Um, I'll do it after Summer League ends or close to it. Or in the coming days about um, guys who have stood out, um, things I've noticed about players and all that. Um, Summer League is a huge thing going on right now. That'll probably be coming. Look for that within the next five to seven days. Um, uh, Yeah, so that's about it here for After the Final Whistle on the State of Wrestling episode. I am your host, Brad Clear. Follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear, K-L-I-E-R, underscore, um, I'll be tweeting all about anything happening in the sports world, wrestling world, any musings that pop into my head, they'll be on there. Again, thank you for listening. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to the Gorillas of Destiny theme song. Shout out to All In. Shout out to Mojo Raleigh. Shout out to Extreme Rules. Shout out to the G1 Climax. Again, I'm Brad Clear, the host of After the Final Whistle. And as always, goodbye and good Night.